I looked at the schedule and there was a 6.30 flight out of Washington, which sounded pretty good. I'd be landing at 7.21 because I'd pick up an hour. Uh, but when I arrived at the airport, uh, that flight had been canceled. So that was the beginning of the problem. And then uh, the 7.06 flight with another airline, I got on that flight and... Uh, then we taxied out the runway, and they announced that there would be a delay of one hour because of the bad weather. And then when we do take off, we're going to have to go the long way, you know, around the storms. And, and that did pretty well. So we landed just a, little, a few minutes before uh, 9 o'clock, and then I made a serious mis- mistake. I told the cab driver that I was late for a meeting. <laughs> and uh, I said, how long does it take to drive downtown? He said, oh, about 35 minutes. But he says, if I drive fast, I can get you there in 15. <laughs> so that, that, was, uh, that was the worst part of the trip. <laughs> that, that made me a little bit nervous, but I feel better now. And it's, uh, it, it's real nice to be here and visiting with you again. Um, I, I hope I can bring you some good news. Uh, it's not automatic, though. Sometimes you have to search for good news when you leave Washington. The good news is I left Washington. I'm here. <laughs> and uh, it's also good news for me personally because if you're there in Washington uh, trying to fight the uh, battles that we have, sometimes you get a uh, false impression that there are, uh, there's nobody, you know, with you. Even the so-called good guys are saying the right things, but when you really look at what they're doing, we're not doing very much. And that's always disturbing to me. So we, we have the apparent bad guys, the guys that admit they love big government. Uh, I, I sometimes respect them more than the other ones who claim everything that we say, but never seem to achieve very much. So it is really good for me to get out of Washington, especially to get back to my district, uh, because uh, obviously if I was completely off track on advocating very, very limited government, I couldn't get elected. People do keep tabs on what you do and how you vote and what you believe in, and more so now than it was when I was in office before. Uh, I was in office between 76 and 84, so I've been out for 12 years. So it's uh, easy to start comparing, uh, uh, you know, politics and events and and how things are going. Uh, Washington is certainly different. I mean, being a member of the majority party is a lot better. There are some political advantages to it. The disadvantage, of course, is that sometimes the rhetoric sounds a lot better than what's really happening. For instance, uh, we just recently heard the announcement within the last month that the budget is, has now been balanced and that everything seems to be okay. You know, they sometimes argue, Republic, Republican and Democrats argue, uh, liberals and conservatives argue, and they always seem to come up with a compromise, and it usually means more spending and, and maybe slightly less taxes. So, uh, and that's essentially what happened. They were feeling better about some of the statistics, which I think is an illusion. I, I think they're deceiving themselves as far as what's happening. But they've been uh, led to believe that things are doing a lot better, revenues are up, and therefore they could afford more spending. And that's essentially what happened. I thought the budget bill was a disaster. And yet, the announcement was total euphoria. I mean, if you would only exist in Washington and listen to that, you'd think, well, we, I don't need to be there anymore. I can go back to medicine. Things are doing so well. And uh, we're, uh, you know, uh, hauling in, curtailing the power of the bureaucrats and doing so well. But then when you look at it, you know all the problems. I mean, what, what, did, what major event happened in the budget that affects us? 
That, of course, was a $20 billion increase in a new medical program. I mean, the whole problem has been that government's been involved in medicine. And yet the conservatives, you know, with this tremendous excitement and delight about a balanced budget, say, they say very little about the fact that we've in, introduced a brand new uh, child care uh, program that begins with $20 billion. And you know how that starts. It starts with a few billion, and, and before you know it, it's into the hundreds of billions of dollars, and you have programs as big as Medicare. <clears throat> then they're unmanageable, then prices go up, then there's rationing, then there's managed care, the, the whole works. And uh, we as physicians and uh, believers in the Constitution and individual liberty have to continue to struggle and, and fight. On the um, positive side, though, I think the country is moving in the right direction slowly and precariously. That doesn't mean Washington is moving in the right direction yet, but the country has started to. I think there are more people now, from my viewpoint of having been in and out of politics and in and out of, uh, of education, I think there are a lot more people <clears throat> in the country, in my district, uh, who are more supportive of our views and demanding less government. People are sick and tired of it. And the most, the healthiest part of uh, this concern has been that now statistically and on various uh, occasions this has been proven to be the case, is that it's down under 10% of the people who really trust the government. Now that's healthy. That is really healthy. I got myself into a little bit of a problem right off uh, in the early part of the year. I was on C-SPAN, and uh, I expressed some concern that not only people, not only did a lot of people not trust the government, they actually feared the government, like at Waco and a few other things. Now, that was enough of a reason for uh, the member in Texas who happened to be a liberal Democrat who represented Waco to get on the House floor and condemn me by name about saying that there was a reason to actually fear our government. Uh, yet last week I just read an article that summarized some GSA statistics and it shows that in 1996 we added 2,496 armed bureaucrats to our agencies. Not just bureaucrats, but we armed them. And it wasn't for the FBI. It was for the EPA and OSHA uh, fish and wildlife, and uh, actually the land management people want to be armed as well. Well, why do they have to be armed? Well, they're thugs. They're coming and they're taking our property. And that's why people are getting mad. And they don't feel, they don't feel comfortable that they can get redressed through the courts. And uh, unfortunately, they've taken up that method of, uh, of dealing with a problem. Now, I'm less uh, inclined to violence because uh, I'm uh, frightened about getting shot, and I'd like to avoid that. And I try to uh, uh, do the things that so many of us have done, and that is try to change things politically. And I always figure, I always uh, rationalize and say, if a guy like me can get elected, we shouldn't give up yet because people know exactly what I think about the government. So therefore, there are people out there. And uh, we've been able to convince them in the, in the particular district that I represent that uh, we aren't satisfied with, with what is happening. And we certainly shouldn't be satisfied with what is happening in Washington. I have a uh, very libertarian uh, uh, philosophy, as you know, and uh, I have to defend it, and sometimes it's, it's difficult. 
But I usually defend it very easily uh, as far as explaining it to my colleagues. And when they have trouble with one of my votes or one of my positions, I'll ask them to explain it, their position in context of the Constitution. And uh, that draws interesting responses. One uh, uh, of my staffers was meeting with another staffer from another office, and they say, your boss has a peculiar attitude about legislation. He, he insists it always conforms with the Constitution. <laughs> so, so he called it peculiar. Uh, so uh, that's the way it is looked at at some time. I had an, an amendment on the floor uh, to stop corporate welfare and foreign welfare in the Foreign Operations uh, Appropriations Bill. And it would have, uh, I think it was uh, 700 and some million dollars. It would have taken all aid out of, from OPIC and Export-Import Bank and other trade organizations that were absolutely uh, beneficial to special corporations and uh, there was no uh, constitutional justification for it. And Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi from California, not one of us, uh, was uh, representing the other side and I, I I, in the debate, uh, I asked her right out, I said, uh, I could, because here she was, this so-called liberal worrying about this poor little people in the country, strongly supporting the benefits of the very wealthy corporation. I said, could the gentlelady point out to me uh, in the Constitution where she gets this authority? And uh, she paused for a minute and she looked and she says, you know, I've never thought about that. <laughs> She says, uh, I don't know where that is, but it's an interesting question. She says, maybe we should ask that more often. And maybe there is somebody else in the House that could answer that for you. <laughs> so another Democrat got up on the floor and he says, well, he says, he says, that's no problem. He says, that's under the general welfare clause. And I said, well, if it's a general welfare clause, how come you generally take money from taxpaying citizens and give it to some specific uh, special interest groups? I said, that sounds like it's at the expense of the general welfare, and obviously they're distorting even this whole welfare state that they've justified under the general welfare clause. That is so much uh, uh, malarkey, you can't even uh, uh, tolerate it. But this came up again the other day that they felt compelled at least to answer it. Uh, the bill... Uh, I, the, the bill, I can't recall right now, but I, I mentioned that, oh, it was on the education bill. Uh, it was on testing. We had an amendment to say the president could not test unless approved by the Congress. He can't just go out and do things like that without the Congress. And I got up and I said, I support this amendment. I don't think the president should do this, but quite frankly, I don't believe even with permission of the Congress that you ought to be having nationalized testing. So this was a challenge to David Obey, who then got up and he was very disturbed because he didn't want to let it stand that the whole program could be questioned on principle. So he uh, made it very, very clear that education was a proper function of the federal government under the general welfare clause, just as national defense was. So that's, that's how they come up uh, with the answer. But I feel very compelled to try to present our case the best way I can on principle. I do not like to introduce amendments that would cut foreign welfare by 10%. Uh, because you condone and endorse the notion that maybe 90% is permissible. And I'm much more interested in losing the vote if necessary, but pointing out they ought not to be doing these things. 
They ought not to be in medicine. They ought not to be in education. And we must force them to think in these terms. I fault so much of what's happening with the Republicans and the conservative revolution in the past couple years because they are so willing to concede the moral principle upon which the programs depend that they are... Uh, for instance, taking the housing bill, uh, that came through the banking committee and was on the House floor, and unfortunately I was the only Republican that opposed it. But the reason the conservatives liked it was they delivered the control of public housing locally. They, they put in block grants, and they added money. They added money, collected more money from you, endorsed the concept but said this is the conservative answers to the liberal that we will allow the states uh, to manage the funding and, and deal with pub public housing. But I think it's much more important to ask the question, because someday we're going to be bankrupt, because I don't uh, quite buy into these arguments that uh, we are balancing the budget. So it's much more important to be asking the question, should the government be involved? And that's why our organization is so important, because we do ask that question. And we deal with it on principle, unlike the uh, other larger organization of medicine that does not deal on, on these same principles. So I think that uh, it, it is key, it's crucial. I don't think we can win any other way other than to stand on a principle, state it, and if we can win a battle here and there, fine. If uh, we can get a token win or at least nudge our, ourselves in a certain direction, that's okay. I happen to believe that the medical savings account allows uh, that, although it's far from uh, medicine being dealt with completely in the marketplace. At least, you know, I believe that uh, moves us in the right direction. But stating the principle uh, upon which free market medicine uh, stands, I think, is crucial. Then, of course, in combination with that is the finding uh, the best way to give proper care to a patient. Uh, and the two go together. It's, I've always thought that uh, I would stand for freedom and individual liberty even if the standard of living of everybody in the country had to take a notch downward. But we'd never have to accept that notion. Matter of fact, the exact opposite is true. Not only do we have the uh, moral uh, position correct in what we advocate, we have the Constitution on our side, but we have the practical argument too. One that we have not dealt with uh, very well. So often the welfare uh, people, in, in the name of doing good, and they grab the moral high ground, and they're the only ones that care. And in a prosperous nation, in a wealthy nation, in a country that has become uh, very wealthy uh, through a free market, uh, frequently uh, this, is the, this seems to be the case on the short run. That if there's a problem, if they steal a little bit of money here and pass it around, it looks like they're solving a problem. But we're moving into an age quite different than the 1950s uh, as the welfare state really got rolling. Uh, we're dealing in a time now where we have seen the collapse of communism around the world. And in spite, once again, of the rhetoric and the statistics coming out of Washington, we are going to face the same or similar type of problem here uh, with the uh, welfare state, because I do not believe the welfare state will continue at this rate uh, of spending, and therefore we will be obligated to come up with something a lot better. Taxes were slightly reduced. I voted for the tax bill. It was nothing 
worth bragging about. I mean, just because it did lower capital gains, it gave some benefits to families with children, and it did help on uh, on inheritance tax. It it was a slight uh, slight improvement. But one thing that the advocates of the balanced budget uh, movement and the declaration of a balanced budget fails to emphasize, and that is even if we could theoretically claim the budget is balanced, for instance, what they don't even deal with is the fact that currently we're increasing the national debt by $200 billion a year because we're borrowing from all the uh, trust fund. But let's say even in spite of that, we could balance the budget at $1.7 trillion. It would be a disaster. The balanced budget would have to come with higher taxes. And we are already working for our government more than half the time. Isn't it sad and a bit ironic that the last day we pay for our taxes, including the cost of regulations but not including the cost of inflation, we work till July 3rd. Our first day of independence from the all government level of taxation is on July 4th. And the people are still very complacent. Uh, upset and angry, but they're not quite sure. If they were very upset and concerned, they probably would not be endorsing our president quite to the degree that they are. But uh, today there seems to be a fair amount of complacency uh, along that line. We do live in an age where I think there's a lot more inflation uh, than, the government's, uh, than the government will concede. Uh, I think one thing we saw in the paper just yesterday and today that might be a measurement of inflation is the fact that a guy like uh, Ted Turner can come up and donate a billion dollars to his favorite charity, the United Nations. I mean, somebody asked me that yesterday. He said, what do you think about Ted Turner donating a billion dollars uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to the United Nations? I said, that's probably the only place the UN should ever get any of their money and never through taxation. But it's also very sad that the uh, part of the free enterprise system that still exists, and I'm not sure that when you get into big finances, uh, that it is true free enterprise. It's uh, much closer to special interest, uh, uh, a fascist type of system where the, the bankers and others can make a lot of money. But in many ways, though, the freedom we've had and the prosperity we have have allowed the Jane Fondas and the Ted Turners to accumulate great wealth. And yet they're our greatest enemies. And uh, it, it, is, it is sad. So I don't think we're going to have... Uh, Ted Turner send uh, our organization a lot of money to fight for the cause of free medicine. He will continue to fight for the cause of internationalism. The United Nations is a cause um, that I have taken up uh, since I've been back. I've never had much liking for the United Nations. My position is very complex about the United Nations. I, I think we should be out of the United Nations. Matter of fact, I'm not sure when there was a vote on that uh, prior to this year because I have a bill in to get out of the United Nations, but on the Foreign Operations Bill, I was able to bring it up as an amendment and force the people to vote on it. We had 54 members uh, vote to get out of the United Nations, which is better than four or eight or ten. So 54 is decent, but it was encouraging also to know there were a lot who supported that position but thought that they would be ridiculed back at home for taking such an extreme position. But I think that position is getting less extreme all the time when you think of 
how upset the American people are getting about putting our troops under UN command and foreign generals, seeing uh, the signs put up around our national parks where you're seeing these biospheres and, uh, and, and different parks being designated as international uh, parks. Uh, also, I read this morning that the United Nations has just sent a delegation from the Human Rights Commission to spend a couple weeks at the invitation of our president to investigate whether or not we're abusing in this country the capital, uh, um, uh, capital crimes, you know, capital uh, murder, you know, to uh, put somebody to death. And uh, they're going to come in and investigate us. I mean, just the idea of this. We had a problem down in Brazoria County where I live, and it, it was on national news, and you probably read about it. And, and that had to do with some tape that got out. It was about a year later. It happened last year, but it, but it looked like the police probably were uh, beating up on these prisoners. Exactly the circumstances, what happened, I do not know, and it probably deserves some investigation. But I, of course, would be a constitutional said the investigation should be local and not even national. But somebody that very week turned it over and it was reviewed in Geneva. And this commission, for all we know, may be investigating that as well. But this whole idea of a trend toward internationalism is something that almost is sneaking in as we uh, do what uh, the conservatives are wanting to do, and that is to move back to the states the control of federal spending. That is, we do block grants, think that we're doing something, at the same time we're expanding the role of, uh, of these international bodies. And there are plenty of those. Uh, uh, there are plenty of uh, organizations that are working around the world that are international. Matter of fact, we're getting ready to do it again. I, I believe in free trade. I believe in it in a serious manner. I believe that trade should have as low as tariffs as possible. I believe it's a liberty issue that you have the right to spend your money where you want unless, you know, we're at time of war or something. But if, you, if, if our car companies are having trouble and you want to buy a Japanese car, I look at it as your personal right to buy a car where you want. Besides, economically, we put pressure on our car companies uh, to do better. So I argue for low tariffs. For that reason, I took a controversial stand and I voted for low tariffs with China. I voted against because I introduced an amendment to stop all the export-import bank subsidies to Red China because they got $4.3 billion of subsidies last year. But I separate those two issues. I would even consider and, and think that uh, we should trade with, uh, with, with Cuba. Uh, quite frankly, the sanctions against Cuba for 40 years have done nothing to get rid of Castro. Castro for 40 years has used United States as a whipping dog for everything that ever failed in Cuba. He said, ah, see, it's those Americans' fault. So I'm for free trade. But I'll tell you what I'm not for. I'm not for organization, international organizations that manage trade for the benefit of special interests, like NAFTA and the World Trade Organization. This is internationalism at the worst, and they're getting ready to do it again. Fast-track legislation is coming up. And if you separate even the principle of fast-track from free trade, we shouldn't even accept the principle of fast-track. Fast-track means that we concede in advance as a Congress powers to the President to negotiate a treaty by majority vote, and we have nothing to say once it comes in. It does not have to be ratified by the Senate by, uh, by two-thirds. And he can go in, and, and, the, and then we have had a careless approach to um, uh, accepting treaties as overriding our Constitution. 
And, and you know, just the whole idea that uh, the United Nations can come in here and, uh, and look at our laws and our environment and our labor laws, uh, I think is a, a very, very serious uh, trend. So that's one issue. So I am very vehemently opposed to the principle of fast track and will be voting against that, even though some will say, oh, he's not voting for free trade. He claims he's for free trade, but he's not for free trade. Well, the other thing is, is if it takes, I think GATT Treaty was uh, 22,000 pages of management on how to do free trade. You know, when the colonies got together and decided they wanted free trade among the colonies, they did it in three lines. You know, that's the way, uh, that's the, way the founders thought. They thought very clearly and said there should be no barriers, and the government's responsibility was to break down the barriers. And, and that was it. But uh, when you have these agreements and you have a World Trade Organization, when that came out, I can remember an ad in the New York Times came out and say, ah, this is wonderful. We finally got the third leg of the New World Order. And they used these terms. You know, it used to be only a few of us would use these terms, uh, and uh, we were considered quite kooky. But um, our last Republican president made it very conventional to talk about the New World Order. And he says, now we have three legs. We have the World Bank, and we have the uh, uh, IMF, and now we have the World Trade Organization. Uh, in this fast track, they're talking about, and yet there's been very little publicity about it, Another, they want to tack on, and we can't get a copy of the precise language of the bill. Uh, we still have not seen that. But um, there, there's a treaty called Multilateral Agreement on Investments, MAI. And uh, this, uh, this is, a, if this is passed, this means that any individual, any corporation can appeal any problem with any country involved through this organization rather than going to the state or the government that's involved. In other words, you throw all state law and all federal government law out and you, we will make the agreement that any of these concerns will go directly as an individual, further undermining you know, our, uh, our sovereignty. This is the trend that uh, we're going in and I consider it a very uh, a serious uh, mistake on our part. I mentioned earlier that uh, I do get a little concerned about uh, some of the rhetoric from our side and yet uh, we don't uh, do what we should do. The sophomore class uh, is much more aggressive than the freshman class. It was much bigger and they came demanding reforms and they're a very good group of people and they're well motivated and uh, yet I think they picked the wrong battles. Uh, that, that is the problem. Uh, this, this week, you know, it's interesting. I guess you heard that we all voted for ourselves a pay raise. Well, I didn't vote for that bill, but the way, the way that happened was on the Treasury bill, they deleted the, fra they deleted the, uh, uh, the phrase that would have prevented uh, the automatic increase for cost of living. So it has said nothing about pay raising, but it deleted the prevention because the law says that all federal employees get a cost of living increase. So it was the deletion. It wasn't in a positive sense. It was just in a, a negative sense. <clears throat> and the pay raise comes out after taxes would be about $40 a week. And um, I think it's an important issue, and I'm, a, I'm opposed to raising the pay of all congressmen. I don't take my <clears throat> retirement benefits because I think they're immoral and atrociously beneficial to the members of Congress. 
often said if you got rid of that retirement system, maybe you wouldn't have to pass anything to limit terms. They just wouldn't stay so long. But, uh, but I don't feel quite so strongly about the $40 a week uh, pay raise, uh, although my position is clear. But the, but the sophomore class, you know, believe this is the most important issue ever, almost. And they're, you know, advocating the repeal, which is okay. But uh, at the same time, they have joined hands in pushing the Schuster bill on transportation, which increases the spending on the, re- on the highways by $38 billion, claiming that we have our budget under control and that we're just getting some of our money back. You know, that old argument again. That's sort of like arguing for increased Medicare benefits because we have to send so much uh, taxes up there, so let's raise Medicare benefits, something like that. But uh, in spite of that, uh, it, it's, a, it's the best part of the Republican caucus is, is the, uh, probably the sophomore class. It's just that hopefully if you have the chance to talk to them, guide them in uh, some of the more uh, sound issue, which is really the level of government expenditure. You know, if we're spending at 1.7, the level of government expenditure uh, really is the key. Uh, there is um, a, a reassessment of what was said uh, when the Republicans took uh, control, and they had listed uh, uh, over uh, 300 programs that were going to be uh, eliminated, and, um, and three departments. None of that has happened. For, for instance, uh, the AmeriCorps, which is something that I despise, although it's not gigantic, you know, it's one of those little ones, $426 million last year. I mean, that's piddling. Uh, it's been increased to 504 this year. And AmeriCorps is, the, is a real darling of the Clintons. And what they have done, they want that to be the, uh, the basis of national youth service, you know, a real, uh, a real constitutional uh, free market uh, uh, program. But they want the AmeriCorps uh, to expand. So what they have done is they ordered an executive order to use uh, the selective service, the draft uh, registration, in order to take these names, since we don't have a draft, but selective service is still in existence now for 25 years, spending millions of dollars registering kids, which they already have their names, but systematically they make everybody go through this. They use this to supply names and addresses and get leads on getting people into AmeriCorps. And I have a bill that would prevent doing that. I would like to get rid of selective service and I would like to get rid of AmeriCorps. But we're not very good at this. The Republican uh, uh, leadership in the House because AmeriCorps actually expanded. Uh, under uh, Goals 2000 since the Republicans have taken over. Now you would think Goals 2000 which they wanted to abolish. Unfortunately it came in, it was initiated by Bush. And now it's in. And you know what's happened? It's nearly tripled. It went from 231 to $688 million. So uh, big government is alive and well, unfortunately. And the uh, budget is, um, is still uh, growing very much. There's a lot, of talks about, uh, a lot of talk about tax reform. And my basic position on tax reform is that taxes ought to be lower. And we ought to get rid of the income tax. But there's a, lot, there's a lot of argument up there on what to do right now. Uh, uh, Dick Army wants a flat tax. Uh, Bill Archer wants a sales tax. 
But again, if you're still back to collecting uh, uh, more than 50% of our revenues to finance big government, it's going to be a problem. But I would vote for anything that would reduce the power and control of the IRS. But ultimately, the only thing that will allow our freedoms to expand and our taxes to go down would be a changed attitude about the role of government. As long as the majority of the people in this country still endorse the welfare state, we are going to have a need for taxes and we are going to have governments pestering us. Even with all these reforms, they never talk about the income tax that we pay, which is called Social Security and Medicare taxes. I did a proposal, and it will appear in my Freedom Report, of assuming that the budget is more honestly dealt with. And um, there's a couple of things that you can do. One is uh, the interest on the national debt, you could reduce it drastically just like that. Because $1.9 trillion, trillion of our debt goes to our agencies, like Social Security and other uh, trust funds. So in that sense, we owe it to ourselves. But that is not a trust fund because that money's already been spent and it all depends on future taxation. So if you take the interest on that, plus the interest we pay the Federal Reserve, and they hold almost a half a trillion dollars, you're talking about uh, $2.4 trillion of debt which is not real debt owned to uh, private, private owners. So in theory, you could eliminate all that. But it finally dawned on me just recently why that exists. When I was studying OPEC, that's the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is nothing more than a boondogger for big business, they came and asked for $32 million for operating funds. And they say they are self-sufficient and they pay all their bills and everything is good, but we just need these couple dollars to operate. <laughs> but then when you look at it, what have they done over all these years? With taxpayers' money, with the money they've earned, they buy treasury bills, which is uh, you know, not negotiable. Uh, treasury bills are non-negotiable. It's the, uh, uh, it's the debt that they just pass on like in a trust fund. And they, ca- they collect from the treasury $166 million in interest. So in reality, the appropriation should be 166 plus 32. But nobody thinks about that in those terms. They only think about the 32, which is bad. But you have to think about the entire amount because that is not a true debt. So if you eliminate that $2. trillion, you're going to have interest rates go way down, and then we would be forced to talk about all this on appropriation. OPIC would have a hard time getting $200 million to run its operation. But that's what they're getting. So I would like someday to see people think more in, the, in this terms. And then obviously with the uh, Federal Reserve, I mean the Federal Reserve is probably more secretive than the CIA. And I as a member of the Banking Committee can't attend any of the meetings. And I can't audit it. They don't receive an appropriation. They receive all this huge interest payment. Then they spend it the way they want. And we can't audit them. So I don't think it should be done. They should be, if we don't, up until we get rid of the Federal Reserve, they should at least be on budget and the amount of money they spent appropriated and treated like another agency of government. But uh, that is not likely to happen. They happen to have some very powerful forces uh, behind them. But the the income tax to me is the most atrocious tax. Uh, Frank Chodorov, a libertarian of a few years back, said income income taxation is in principle the worst of all forms of taxation because it begins by asserting 
the prior right of the state to all our wealth. So they began with 1% or so on a few people, but they made the principle stick that they had a prior right to all our wealth. This is why the liberal argues when we propose that we cut taxes, they say, you can't do that. That's going to cost the government so much money. If I give you back 10% of your taxes, if your tax rate goes from 30 to 20, they say, they can't afford it. It costs the government too much money. You're making the assumption that our wealth and our lives and our property belongs to the state. And that's the assumption. That is why medicine is in such shambles. It is because of that same assumption. That they have this obligation and this moral authority to claim that they have control over our lives and services. And uh, as long as that principle stands, we will have a, a very, very tough time. Now, I do want to leave some time for questions, but I want to uh, try to wind this up uh, and talk a little bit more about those uh, principles in medicine. Uh, I imagine most everybody in this room have heard of or read the book, the book Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged was a very important book. Uh, it still is one of the most sold books in the, uh, in the country, written by Ayn Rand. Of course, Rand is, a, um, is an objectivist and an atheist and has an approach to philosophy which I uh, don't agree with uh, in many ways. But she still was a great novelist and she still emphasized the importance of standing on principle. And I think uh, that's why I enjoy this organization so well, because we have been known to stand on principle and send the right messages out, even though at times there were only a few sending that message out and more now. Uh, so that, to me, pleases me. But she had, there was a physician there that, uh, you know, the theme of Atlas Shrugged is, is that if they, uh, if they are going to do that to us, we're going on strike and we'll deny them our services. That I don't quite agree with. There's an alternative to it, but it makes an important point. And the, and the doctor that was in Atlas Shrugged was a Dr. Hendricks, and, and he was talking about this ability to provide service. He said, that was what I would not place at the disposal of men whose sole qualification to rule me was their capacity to spout the fraudulent generalities that got them elected to the privilege of enforcing their wishes at the point of a gun. I would not let them dictate the purpose for which my years of study had been spent or the condition of my work or my choice of patience or the amount of my reward. I have often wondered at the smugness with which people assert their right to enslave me, to control my work, to enforce my will, to violate my conscience, to stifle my mind. Yet what is it that they expect to depend on when they lie on an operating table under my hands? Their moral code has taught them to believe it is safe to rely on the virtue of their victims. Well, that is the virtue I have withdrawn. Let them discover the kind of doctors that their system will now produce. You know, we're, you know she wrote that in 1957, 40 years ago. And uh, we're, we're approaching that point where we are seeing the production of doctors in a much different manner. Uh, I have no personal resentment from foreign doctors coming in here. Matter of fact, in many ways I have uh, had close contact with foreign doctors who've come to this country and I claim they're more American than some of our doctors. They're uh, good physicians and they come in and they practice well and they love the freedom and they support me wholeheartedly. I have a few doctors that have come from Cuba and I can hardly say that about them. But then again, I see our many hospitals so often 
filled by foreign doctors that can barely speak the language and you wonder where are the American doctors? Where are they being trained? And here we hear our U.S. Congress is willing and anxious now to pay our medical schools not to train American doctors. There's something gone screwy with, uh, with our system. And uh, yet uh, uh, we are continually coming under the gun of, uh, of physicians uh, uh, controlled by, by, the, by the government. The uh, choice we're going to have to make is whether or not we want to uh, live under this system of not or, or not. I don't believe we should go on strike. Uh, I guess in a way I go on strike when I leave my practice. <laughs> I go to Washington, and I've done that a couple times. But just think of the worst conditions that existed in the Soviet Union, which we all pray, and I, I don't believe we'll ever get that bad. I don't think we're moving toward communism or socialism. I fear much more fascism. But think of the very worst days in the Soviet Union. There were still private physicians. There were still those who would not participate, that worked in the underground economy, that worked with a blink uh, and a wink from the government, and who came and patronized them? The government officials. Because they were men of integrity. I mean, we are a remnant. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether kitty care is going to lead to worse conditions or whether a medical savings account will lead to better condition. I happen to think both. They'll get worse before they get better, but then they're going to get better. But hopefully not too bad. But there's something wrong with a system that has permitted the interjection of a corporate welfare state between us and our patients where they're raking off a huge sum of money to manage the care. Where so many physicians have succumbed to the, to the notion that and, the, and be willing to call some bureaucrat, some insurance bureaucrat across the country and ask him if it's permission uh, to admit a patient and what day we can discharge them. We've gotten to a point now where, yes, it's out of control, the, insured, the management companies tell us we have to discharge patient after 24 or 48 hours. And what is, seems to be happening by so many who has an, have an influence in Washington, they go to Washington and ask Congress to vote on a bill that tells us how long the patient should be in. Both, both answers are wrong, obviously. The only answer is the private practice of medicine. The private practice of medicine has to be kept alive and that's what our job is and that's why this organization there's no other medical organization like this that is willing to fight on principle to keep this alive so it is up to us uh, to do this it is crucial how it will come out I do not know but I do know that it is very very important that we do what we are doing and fighting for this and not to compromise and I know there are options. I know it is very difficult. And this whole idea right now that, uh, that there is legislation or uh, the law that was just recently passed said that if somebody practices medicine and has a private contract, it will cancel him out from participating in any other government-type program. Well, that's a mixed bag in many ways, but the whole idea that they will attack the notion that somebody wants to move over and have a private contract and make it illegal, I think is a very, uh, very dangerous uh, idea. I 
I've been involved in politics a long time. I am very much interested in maintaining my skills in medicine, which is getting more difficult all the time. More difficult now than when I was in the Congress before. But it's something that I want to do because I still think as a physician, my goal in life was wanting to be a good physician. I cannot remember a more exciting day, short of uh, many family events, but the excitement of leaving my residency and going into a small town and opening up a practice all by myself and having my patients. That to me was very exciting. And the responsibility, which was very great in the town that I went in, I did not have a general surgeon, I did not have an anesthesiologist, yet I was doing surgeries that uh, required a lot more responsibility than the average uh, hospital would put on a doctor today. But that is something that I love and I want to hang on to. But political action is so important for all of us, no matter at what level that we are, because it is in politics, the main purpose of politics is to seek liberty. I see no other purpose. If we see politics as to seek a bit of special benefit, then we're off on the wrong track. This is why the lobbyists, the lobbyists for the AMA are off track. They do not come and ask me for more liberty. They, they come for other reasons, as do 95% of all the other lobbyists. They have a right to lobby, but they don't have a moral right to steal. And th there's a big difference, and that's what most of them are doing. They come to steal. Our goal in political action should be to strive for liberty. When we have liberty and we have freedom of choice and freedom of association and freedom to practice, then we can strive under those conditions for excellence and virtue. Strive for economic and spiritual well-being. And it's only under a free society that this can be achieved. But once we get the government involved in those goals, trying to make us better people, telling us how to live and telling us what to smoke and drink and how to live, and once we have the government telling us how to improve the economic conditions of everyone, then we destroy the number one issue, and that is liberty. You cannot have both if you allow the government this role. So my purpose in being politically active is to strive for liberty, to allow us in a free society to strive for excellence. Thank you very much.